Welcome back to the Waverton Wineverse podcast. It's me, Luke Hyde-Smith, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Tom Savile. We are really excited to introduce this two-part series, an intellectual tussle between two giants of the investment world, as we discuss the merits of the investment opportunities across the public-listed equity markets and the growing universe of unquoted private assets. So, Tom, who have we got lined up? Thanks, Luke. First up is Antia Malman. He's going to highlight and discuss the work that he and his firm have undertaken in the analysis of private markets. He will argue that the outlook from here may actually favour public or listed equities over their private market cousins. In the second part of the double bill, we'll be joined by Hartley Rogers, executive co-chairman of Hamilton Lane, one of the world's largest allocators to private markets. Hartley will share some unique insights from his career in the industry, plus make the case for why investors should consider ongoing allocation to the private market opportunity set. We really hope you enjoy this two-part series, so let's dive in. Today we're joined by Antti Ilmanen, Global Co-Head of the Portfolio Solutions Group at AQR Capital Management. Amongst the vast list of accolades to Antti's name is the recently published and critically acclaimed Investing Amid Low Expected Returns. Antti, may I just ask you to introduce yourself and how you came to write the book? Sure. So first, thanks for inviting me here. I've been in investing business for many decades, buy-side bond investor in Finnish Central Bank, bond strategist at Salomon Brothers, which became Citigroup, macro trader in hedge fund Brevan Howard, and since 2011 in my natural home, systematic asset manager, AQR Capital. Along the way, I did a finance PhD in Chicago long ago. I've advised some large investors like Norway's Sovereign Wealth Fund, Oil Fund, and I figured out that maybe my best contribution is to write some stuff, articles and books that can help investors grasp better good investing. And my main claim to fame in that was probably 12-ish years ago, the first book, Expected Returns. And then later I thought that I would want to write the sequel, updating things, but especially highlighting this contrast between the environment we've had in recent decades of this wonderful capital market environment for investors compared to much stingier expected returns going ahead. And that became then my second book. I thought one of the most interesting and perhaps controversial chapters in your book addressed private assets and the concept of illiquidity premium. Can you explain to us first what private markets are and what's meant by an illiquidity premium? Sure. So that's multi-part. So first, what privates aren't. So most investor portfolios are dominated by liquid investments, equities and bonds that are listed in public exchanges. Private markets are neither listed nor liquid. They include private equity, private credit, unlisted real estate, infrastructure, etc. These illiquid asset classes are increasingly popular, but they are still much smaller in size than major public capital markets. And they have got very limited data histories. And in the book, and probably today also, I chose to focus on US private equity, where we have got at least 30 years of decent data. By the way, this term private equity can be used narrowly to focus on leveraged buyouts, or it can be more broadly to include also venture capital and growth equity sort of startups. I'll focus on that narrower buyout story. And then to illiquidity premium. Mm. So illiquidity itself is a funny nebulous concept, Like, but broadly speaking, it's about the time and cost it takes to sell your investments or trade your holdings. 
even with public markets, we would have illiquidity premium. Like small caps are less liquid than large caps in stocks and credit, corporate credits tend to be less liquid than government bonds. But today we'll focus on the liquidity difference between private and public assets. Privates are much harder to trade, and this may warrant an illiquidity premium. Investors may demand higher expected return for this difficulty in trading as a compensation for illiquidity. So basically, Antti, you're saying the illiquidity premium there, the longer that I lock my money in, the better return I should get. Does this hold up in reality? Yeah, well, the logic is certainly solid. Investors should demand such a premium, and some evidence does support it, but there are some interesting counterpoints. So I'll focus on that US private equity, where we have got this 30 plus years of data. And we do see that the industry has outperformed collectively. When we look at all private equity buyout managers in US, they have outperformed major index like Standard & Poor's 500, Mm S&P 500, by about 3% a year over these 30 plus years. And that's great. And it's especially great when you see that this is overall, this is not just the top quartile. And this is after fees and private equity has high fees. Then I just throw in some caveats. So most of that outperformance happened when the industry was much smaller 20 years ago and earlier than that, basically before the endowment model or Yale model became popular. David Swenson, the Yale's made investor, had these books that inspired many institutions and also some private individuals, but let's say institutions especially, to come into these private assets. And the inflows that we've been getting there has made the space more competitive. And since then, in the last 15 to 20 years, the outperformance has been more like 1% a year rather than 3% a year. Another example of maybe disappointing illiquidity premia is when we look at real estate, where we have got actually almost 50 years of data. In US, we can compare listed so-called REITs, stock type of real estate investments versus direct unlisted real estate. And it turns out that the less liquid unlisted real estate has had higher returns in the long run. So there's been, if anything, there's been a negative illiquidity premium, which you might explain away by some leverage and so on. But it's not that there is very clear evidence of illiquidity premium, even though investors sort of take it for granted. Overall, I think it is uh, fair to think that there is some illiquidity premium most of the time out there. And even if there isn't, you could, and many investors do expect, that they can outperform in private assets because they can find the superior managers. Mm. That's sort of separate from the illiquidity premium question. And clearly, Antti, you've got attention to detail. Your book has many interesting stats on publicly private investing in low return environment, what that may mean for future returns. Talk to us about some of the challenges you had in actually getting hold of accurate performance data for the private market universe, because there is such a range of different performance metrics that are quoted. It's often very opaque in terms of defining the returns that are generated. Yeah, both the metrics and the sources. I have used primarily public sources. So, so there's one source is like Cambridge Associate Consulting Company. They have got some data and then there are lots of academic studies that we've been able to use. But what kind of metrics one uses? The most common metrics in that space are so-called internal rates of return. And they have got lots of problems. They, I think, are popular but dangerous. They can be very misleading. There are, I think, better metrics that try to ask how well have private assets outperformed? Like what's been the relative performance of private assets compared to benchmark like S&P 500? And again, 
I don't have the raw data myself, but there's so much academic research mm. on this that I've been able to then quote in my own studies. You mentioned a term there, internal rate of return. What's that to the layman? So unlike typical total return we think about with stock and bond investing, this is in some way closer to the yield to maturity concept. That means that you are not earning it in a very simple way. And like with yield to maturity, this is a bond geeky comment now, but there are particular reinvestment assumptions that are needed to come up with it. And those reinvestment assumptions now in internal rate of return are very optimistic. Like if you hear that somebody has got an internal rate of return of 35%, it means that somewhere early in there, in the once history, they earned something like 35%. And then they just can assume that whatever came back from that is reinvested and earning always 35%. This is a key reason why there can be such a misleading nature in those numbers. Okay, so it assumes a compounding, if you like, an artificial investment of cash, a return that perhaps you might not realize in the real world. Exactly. Nobody has been compounding that reinvestment at 35% over multiple decades. It's something where you get that anchor number in with your early performance, and then you can count on the reinvestment assumptions to make it yeah, stick. Indeed. Yeah. I think indeed, our many... compliance team will give us a, a real telling off for that one. <laughs> yes, they would. <laughs> You know, many of the optimists on the asset class in terms of private markets, private assets, suggest that being out of the glare of the public markets and allowing the management teams to concentrate solely on the running of the businesses, etc., gives them some competitive advantage over listed peers who perhaps are under more pressure to meet quarterly reporting targets, etc. I mean, how much weight do you give to those claims in terms of advantages of private versus public? Yeah, I think there definitely is substance to that. I mean, the simpler advantages are just using leverage or getting some tax advantages. But I think it is important that these private equity managers can also be skillfully improving those companies, Mm. better incentivizing the senior management, bringing outside help, anything that helps improve the operating performance. And as you were saying regarding that red tape, and some fewer constraints shouldn't hurt them. So I think these are all good things. The question is, will they be good enough or big enough, these effects, to beat the fees. If the fees are 5 6% or something like that, which is roughly all in fees, you can think that there could be roughly 2% management fees, 20% performance fees, mm-hmm. what they call carry. And then there are other less transparent fees on portfolio companies. And it's estimated that it all amounts to, let's say, 5 6%. It is a high hurdle to beat. So even if you are good at improving companies' operating performance, I think it is not clear that most managers can beat that high hurdle. You mentioned a concept of return smoothing in your book. What does this refer to? So public assets are priced daily or even faster and certainly monthly, whereas illiquid private assets are not really mark to market. You can get quarterly or even some cases just annual revaluations, and they are made with some discretion, sometimes by the manager, sometimes by a third party. But in practice, the lack of this mark-to-market pricing means that there is less of that market volatility. You are going to get what I would call artificially smooth. Somebody might call market prices artificially volatile, but artificially smooth returns. So people in the public asset side would say that private asset returns have understated risk. They look too stable compared to reality. And of course, investors tend to like less volatile, more stable returns. I will argue that can make them demand less of a illiquidity premium. 
if investors were to say, I really should get 3% extra for private equity compared to public equity because I'm locking my money for the next 10 years. After some thinking of this, of those smooth returns, they might say, oh, I maybe don't need 3%. I could do with two. I could do with one. Maybe I could do even with same expected return as with public equities, because now I can get that equity exposure with half the volatility and smaller losses in bad times. So I think with that logic, we collectively are eating away some or maybe all of that fair illiquidity premium that comes from locking money for long term. So that's an interesting concept in itself. And so I suppose at the heart of the concept of return smoothing is really one of fewer observations. Yes. And those observations don't get to as extreme. They tend to be sort of maybe averages, you could think. Uh, so is there an element of marking your own home in that sort of sense? Or? One logic I have here is that those valuations are often just based on cash flow expectations. And also equity prices are influenced by cash flow expectations. But equity prices are also moving because investors' risk aversion varies over time. Sometimes we feel wealthy and we are more risk tolerant. And then when we are in bear markets, we've got more fear than greed. With a higher risk aversion, Mm -hmm. we demand basically bigger compensation. Those types of considerations tend to be left out in private asset valuations. They just think of those expected future cash flows. And even there, maybe maybe more smoothly, more stable fashion than public markets. And your thesis is that the stability of these prices is an advantage to people like Luke and I. Yeah. And that means that we're willing to sacrifice that extra return that the illiquidity or sort of harder to sell nature of these assets. Yes. I agree with this point that smooth returns, they confer real benefits to investors. So if all of your equity holdings were marked to market and with all of that volatility, you wouldn't make as big equity allocations. And then then you'd have more conservative portfolio, you would earn less. So that's one part of it. But the other part is you can stick with it better. The patience part is such a key point in good investing. And it's so difficult point. One favorite quote I have in my book is that during the global financial crisis, a private equity index had a 25% drop from peak to trough. Whereas small cap stocks, which are roughly the equivalents for private equity, mm-hmm. they dropped 60%. Mm-hmm. And so the chances that investors become impatient and sell that capitulate at the bottom are that much greater with public assets. So I do think that privates give these real benefits of uh, more risk tolerance, more patience. They are great, but they don't come for free. That's my point. They come with the cost of us bidding away much of that illiquidity premium. What risks might this smoother return profile be hiding, do you think? So logically, private equity involves leveraging often small cap stocks or small or medium cap stocks. So there are other things going on that add value, but there's certainly some risk with that leverage and with that small cap. And by leveraging, we mean more debt. More debt, indeed. So I think the actual economic risk of private equity portfolio logically is greater than some market index. Yet the measured risk is lower. So Mm -hmm. we know that there's some apples and oranges aspect there. And especially the smooth returns, they allow you to avoid repricing when there's fast action going on in the market. So let's think of that COVID episode in early 2020. Markets fell sharply and then rebounded very quickly. If you look at private equity valuations, nothing happened or almost nothing happened. Whereas there was real nervous feeling and maybe bad action then by investors in the public market during that time. But it's important for investors to recognize that you cannot get away from the slow market risk. 
So that gradual risk of protracted bear markets is still there with the private assets. And this is something that I think investors in illiquids must remember that, that the key Achilles heel is not that there's a bad quarter, it's that there's going to be a bad year or bad multiple years that you cannot smooth away. And there's a risk that you haven't taken that into account because you have seen the smoothness in the short term returns. Yeah, I think what is highlighted in your book, although many investors might classify private equity investments in the alternative camp, for example, I mean, the clue is in the name, you know, this is equity exposure. And although it may be marked less frequently, one should be very aware that it carries the same risks in terms of underlying company and operating performance, and consequently shouldn't necessarily be classified as lower risk just yeah. because it's marked less frequently. Yeah. And by the way, the industry is great at marketing. So one of my favorite observations is that even many major private equity managers, David Rubinstein, I've heard him say it a couple of times, they bless some marketing genius who changed the name of that industry, which was originally called leveraged buyouts. Okay. Now it's private equity. Yep. So that, that dirty word leverage is, is sort of like <laughs> largely, largely yes, exactly. And we talk of private equity, which sounds so positive. So I, I do want to, I'll, I'll just conclude here. I think these protracted bear markets are a serious challenge. And maybe somewhat self-servingly, I say that there are some strategies that can be really good complements for that. We find that certain long-short strategies, such as so-called trend following, I don't go into details, they have historically done well precisely in those types of protracted bear markets. So we sometimes call these strategies and private equity a marriage made in heaven, which is sort of weird because they are so different parts of investor interest. One is very liquid, actively traded strategy. Another one is a rarely traded private asset strategy. I suppose we started with the premise that this is going to be a double bill and we'll be inviting somebody from the private equity world to take the other side. But perhaps you're not warring houses and actually you're the Romeo and Juliet for a, <laughs> for a portfolio. <laughs> well, given how popular that space has been, I'd be sort of, from business perspective, happy to act as a Romeo and Juliet. I think one of the uh, you know the other things we could discuss is the rise of passive investment, the rise of quantitative trading. You mentioned COVID and the very, very swift market pricing, both from the drawdown of the equity market, but also the subsequent recovery. You know, do you think the ever-increasing influence of those more passive or quantitative approaches has potentially distorted the public market pricing in the short term and that you know, there is room to think that actually companies' values do move in a slightly more gradual manner. And there's a, there's a happy medium here between aggressive short-term moves based on sentiment in the public markets versus the slightly more gradual market valuation that some parts of the private asset universe undertake. I think there can be something. To that. There's a very decades-old debate among academics of is there too much volatility in public markets? And basically the idea then is that too much volatility is irrational. And I am sure there is some amount of this kind of cycle of fear and greed. And so it's also a rational reason for people to become more risk averse when they become poorer in bear markets and so on. So I, I think since that is then, I don't know, ignored often in private equity side, I'd say that it can be debated again, which is right. I think often corner answers may be wrong. So Thinking that there's a case on both sides, I think that's fair. But I would emphasize here that some critics of return smoothing just say that 
uh, like my my boss Cliff Asnes, he calls it volatility laundering mm. in, in private yes, I've assets. Heard of the yeah. expression, I think, yeah. it captures it quite neatly. Yeah, yeah. So they would say that this is it's an unfair situation that privates have one set of rules and public assets have got another set of rules. It is arguably unfair, but this fact that privates don't get the mark to market gives them advantage. And they, they, we were talking about it already that this smoothness and investor smoothness preference is something that comes with a cost. It comes with us eating away some of that required illiquidity premium. So I sometimes say to people that if you think that you get both an illiquidity premium and this smoothing service or wall laundering benefit, then you are double counting. If you have got this smoothness advantage, it makes sense that the illiquidity premium is going to be smaller than you somehow yes. had thought through. One of the other features of the private equity universe, which has certainly come to the fore over the last 18 months with the dramatic rise in interest rates that we've seen, is you know the whole asset class often gets labelled as only benefiting from cheap rates and excessive leverage. And that is one of the primary drivers of both the spectacular growth we've seen since the global financial crisis in 08, but also some of the outperformance that you quote. You know, Have you run the numbers on that? Do you have a feeling for whether that's an accurate portrayal? Or do you think that's a bit of a lazy narrative that sometimes gets touted as the reason for the performance rather than actually borne out in the facts? Yeah, I think for all assets, this is not just for private assets. I think it is good to think of equities and bonds, your house, private equity as well. You can think all of these as basically long-lived assets that you price by thinking about expected future cash flows discounted by some riskless real rate and some asset-specific risk and illiquidity premia. And I think that the story of the last 30, 40 years is that those real yields, that riskless real yield was coming down and that made gradually all assets more expensive. I think that's very important and that partly justified the higher valuations that we saw for private equity. And I was troubled then when this yield turn came in the last two years, basically like the 10-year tips yield. So tips are inflation-linked bonds, mm-hmm. like uh, index-linked yields. 10-year tips yields rose from minus 1% to plus 2% in the last couple of years, from all-time lows to quite normal or even maybe a bit above average level. And at that point, this private asset manager said, nothing to do with us. And I think that is not realistic. I think they sort of owe us some repricing. So I think that is especially important in today's environment when we still have got these relatively restrictive short well, And that, that speaks to your point earlier about the private market being much more slower moving. And perhaps depending on where rates settle or where they go from here, you know, there's you know, more of a valuation reset in some parts of the private equity arena that has already been discounted and has occurred in the public markets. Yes. And it's also true that if interest rates come halfway, let's say that they went quite high and now they come somewhere halfway mm-hmm. between the, the peak and trough of the last couple of years, and private equity never has to show the valuations at, at that high level, that would be very nice for them. And that can happen. Whereas sort of the bad outcome would be if we get stuck or keep going towards higher yields, then again, you can't hide with the smoothing. Just one final point before we move on, because I think, you know, it is important to note, you know, the private equity arena and indeed the public arena, you know, is a vast universe. And a lot of the valuation and maybe the leverage, et cetera, will be sufficient or there will be the ability to work through depending on the underlying asset performance. Private equity overall is a big universe. 
public equity is a big universe, hedge funds, massive universe, range of different strategies. Yes. So we have to be yes. careful, I think, before classifying everything in one homogenous unit and looking at the individual companies and their performance. That's fair. And yeah, you, you can go however granular on these things. Of course, like private equity, typically the needs on, it's a portfolio of lots of companies mm-hmm. there. And so, so there's at least some diversification happening there, but it's a fair point. And again, I should say, I haven't really emphasized it enough that I am not directly investing in private assets. There are experts in each area of those privates. I try to think this very much from the top-down perspective of, broadly speaking, let's say now those private equities without getting into... But you, you can't help but think, as Tom and I are allocators and many people are thinking about, you know, how are you as a business allocating to these markets? There's been a clear rush by many endowments, allocators to invest more and more in this area, which always rings alarms. And that is very much a top-down concern. And you mentioned valuations there, and let me just go back to that, that we used to have this big valuation gap in the olden days between private equity and public equity. So private equity managers could find target companies which they wanted to take private then, sort of leverage buyout targets using that language that they don't want to use anymore at much cheaper valuations on the market. So that's a, there was a big valuation gap between private and public. And somewhere in 2000s, that gap then narrowed. And since then, it has been very narrow. And again, I think it is related to this popularity of endowment model, David Swenson's books inspiring institutional investors to come into this space. I think that part makes it now harder for private equity to underperform. So we talked about rate levels and valuations. I do think that both of these gave low-hanging fruit for mm-hmm. private equity managers to add value until recently. Positive valuation gap and cheap leverage, now you have neither of those. And that means that private equity managers have to beat the fees, create outperformance, the honest, old-fashioned way of improving the companies. In some way, there's something very, I don't know, I think appropriate, beautiful about it. And they have got some track record that they can do that. But it is, again, not having the low-hanging fruit has to make this much harder job now. So given the low-hanging fruit has gone, how would you think about quantifying private equity returns going forward, possibly relative to public markets? So we try to think of private equity roughly as unlevered public equity, where we apply leverage and we think about the cost of leverage debt. And in the olden days, Private equity used a lot of leverage. Now they use much less leverage. They are more conservative. They, both the managers themselves, I think, want to be somewhat more conservative. In the olden days, they were maybe having $4 of debt for every dollar of equity. Now it's closer to one and one. So clearly less, partly because, again, the managers themselves want it. Also investors, increasingly, they are more institutional and conservative. And so rather than family offices, it used to be more risk tolerant. So that has changed. But the other thing that has changed now in the last two years is that cost of leverage. Again, private equity could justify higher valuations when uh, real yields were negative and credit spreads were narrow Mm -hmm. than now when you have got quite high real yields on even riskless assets. And then, well, credit spreads are not too wide, but wider than they were a couple of years ago. So where does that leave you? So broadly speaking, I think roughly similar expected return as public equity. So public equity could be 3 to 4% real return, long-run expectation yep. from here. If anything, our own estimates 
suggest that this rise in the real cost of debt now recently mm-hmm. makes private assets have lower expected returns than public equity. So again, they didn't reprice, they didn't cheapen as much as public equity did in 22. Both have been hit by this cost of debt and private equity has got more costs. I'm waiting to see whether the fee pressures come to play. But as long as we have got the same old high fees as we do, I think it is possible that for a few years, private equity will underperform Mm -hmm. in returns, public equity. Eventually, I would expect that some combination of uh, valuation gap widening and again, basically private equity cheapening, recognizing that the environment has changed, maybe leverage becoming a bit cheaper from the, you know, like Fed is so tight nowadays and central banks. So that's something between what we had in 2010s and now and lower fees, because I do think that eventually the fee pressures will come to play. This will get us again positive illiquidity premium for private assets. From today's starting place, I think like <laughs> there's this old joke of city people trying to look for the nearby town asking a peasant, how should we go? And, and this old man answers that, well, I wouldn't start from here. That's where I think private equity investors are today. In a few years' time, it can be much more attractive time to invest. I think that's a fair summary and something that Tom and I and our colleagues will and do evaluate on an ongoing basis is like, where is the optimum opportunity set? I mean, you at AQR are proponents of value as a style, which has had its fair share of headwinds since the financial crisis. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about you know, how and where you see the opportunity within the public market, perhaps steering away from what you perceive to be the more overvalued part of that market. Sure. So clearly, across countries, it's clear that US equities have been the most expensive market and have just kept on becoming more expensive compared to other markets. They have outperformed other markets. And mm-hmm. sometimes this is going to stop. So overall, I think country-wise, from long-term perspective, I would say outside US, we do have better opportunities, even if US has got clearly some growth advantage, but it's priced, it's discounted. So people expect it to continue forever in as extreme form as we saw in the last 10, 15 years. So I would look more outside US and then value versus growth. So value strategy had really tough time in 2018, 2020, has recovered very nicely since mm-hmm. then. But still, mm-hmm. when we look at the attractiveness or valuations of value stocks versus growth stocks, we do find that there is still a very nice forward looking opportunity. So we do think that there's both within countries and across countries, some interesting opportunities. But apart from that, my main thing would be to say this, that almost everybody's portfolio is dominated by equity market risk, whether it's public or private. And then you want to ask yourself the question, what can help the portfolio when that risk materializes, especially sustained protracted bear market? And some of these, for example, value strategy sometimes does quite well in those situations. But again, there are some strategies that are even more reliable. Some kind of trend and macro strategies have done most of the time well when we get sustained bear market. So they are, from risk management perspective, they are to me the favorite complement to the core portfolio that everybody has, the equity dominated portfolio. And just to clarify, when you say trend, really, this is looking to pick up in the momentum in price moves. Yes. So for any asset you, you look at, especially the not, not multi-year. So I think that what we often say that Investors make a mistake when they chase past returns, but especially when they chase last three to five year returns, because then we tend to get some reversal patterns. But if chasing actually last few months returns up to a year has been historically helpful because partly markets maybe underreact to news or investors over extrapolate, they become ever more bullish in bull markets and ever more bearish in bear markets. 
And those features have helped trend-following strategies to do well in bear markets. But all human. What makes you wrong, do you think? Yeah, it's funny because I do rightly emphasize humility. I can be wrong. and I have been wrong so many times. And we should acknowledge there's maybe a bias because I uh, work for a liquid asset manager. Mm-hmm. So partly I have deviated from my typical approach of being a very two-handed economist. I have been more blatantly cautious now here on privates. While I do say that I, I've said also some nice things about that, but I know that you are likely going to have somebody else telling the pro story. Mm-hmm. I thought that I would be very clearly the cons representative here. But I think the current situation, again, is challenging. And if we get that cheaper leverage, some central banks acting in a looser fashion, that can be the saving grace for mm. private asset managers. But right now, I would say they owe us some repricing compared to public markets. And uh, I do expect that we will get it. For my sins, I'm both a podcaster and a pension trustee. And we're undoubtedly in a political policy zeitgeist that's encouraging more investment into liquid assets. What advice would you have for pension trustees, charity trustees, or even private individuals who are faced with that sort of decision now? So I, I would first say, clearly history has been great with private assets. And I think prospects are worse and could be relatively bleak now for the next few years. So be aware and be wary of rear view mirror investing. I think this is a time where you don't want to look too much at that rear view mirror. So think twice. I, I found that when I tell my stories to various investors, most of the arguments I made, they make sense to investors. They are nodding, but I do also find out that they then go and buy some more private assets after that. So I am telling. Do think twice and recognize these, some of these key points. Smoothing brings you benefits, but those benefits have got a cost. They probably mean that you shouldn't count on that illiquidity premium as much as you have. So don't rush. If you don't have yet large illiquid allocations, you might be slow with that. Take your time because I think there will be opportunities, better opportunities later. And if you do have already large allocations, then ask what other investments you should add to your portfolio to mitigate the key risk of a basically sustained bear market from here. Thank you very much for your time. And we look forward to the follow-up where we'll be talking about some of the perhaps opportunities rather than the risks that are available in the private market arena. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Tom Saville, and my co-host, Luke Hyde-Smith, and our guest this week, Antia Malman. If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not like us, Subscribe and let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.